Hi everyone again, and welcome back to another episode of Health Points with me, Ben Wilkins, and Pete Jenkins as your co-host. Uh, and today we have our first ever dual guests on the show. Today we have Peter and Raul. Peter is Assistant Professor at Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands with a research focus on digital health platforms. He also manages the Health Data Science Program at Eindhoven's Artificial Intelligence Systems Institute with a focus on creating societal breakthrough health games. And we also have Raoul, who is a PhD candidate and researcher at Eindhoven with a focus on increasing the impact of research and health promotion and lifestyle interventions, particularly through the application of persuasive technology. Peter Rao, it's great to have you both on the episode today. Peter, do you want to give us a bit of an understanding how you've ended up in uh, in health and gamification? Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. My background is a computer scientist. I think that's worth mentioning because um, you really ask now about a specific question like how do you then end up in health? And for me, that's a question like how does a computer scientist end up in that scene? Well, in 2008, I had completed a PhD in certain branch of model-driven software development. And I was curious to apply these techniques in a certain application domain. So why health? To be honest, it was a bit anecdotal. There was just a very nice position here in Eindhoven that I applied for. And over the years, I really did find my passion in health. And in particular, I got inspired in applications of technology for health promotion. And uh, as a software engineer, then, of course, I try to build solutions in a very general way, a very flexible way, future-oriented way. So that was basically my original thing, that I thought that this health domain really needed more rigorous software engineering. So I found pleasure in applying these software engineering techniques. But later, the satisfaction came from really feeling that I could make a small contribution to, to health in general. And what gives me specific pleasure is that Unlike with my PhD, when I explain to my family what I do, they understand me. And with the PhD, that was totally not the case. And I'm, I'm sure that for Raul, it's quite different because the things that he does in his PhD, yeah, he's very capable of explaining them to his family members and friends. And I think there, yeah, that leads to big satisfaction for sure. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Raul, do you want to take off and let us know about your background and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure, sure. So I'm an industrial engineer by, by training, and uh, I've always had this passion for technology and uh, information systems, applications, computers, software, those kind of things. Um, but it was really at my graduation project where also the ad, so where uh, my interest was sparked for, uh, for the health domain, uh, because in my graduation project, I was working together with with Peter, who now is uh, my daily supervisor in my PhD project. And uh, in my graduation project, I did a project related to uh, health promotion, and I really found that inspiring. And I had the idea that I could contribute something to an important topic with the application of software and technology. And that was something I really liked. So, so I, yeah, I tried to stay with that uh, topic. Can you tell us a little bit about that graduation topic, if it inspired you so? Yeah, so it was a project together with the municipality. And the idea was to promote among the employees of that municipality uh, healthier behaviors. 
And in that project, actually, I, I learned a lot uh, because what did I do? I really tried to promote the message to all these employees, like, hey, guys, this is your help. It's really important. Join this program. And I found out that message didn't really work. Yeah, we, I had to try something different, I, I found. And that is what I started doing during my PhD project. So now we are trying different routes of persuading people to, yeah, to work on their health or join our programs. What are you currently working on in either actually delivering in health and gamification or what are you researching at the moment that you can talk about? I'll open up to Peter first. Do you want to come in first on that one? Okay. Um, so the current focus is a renewed focus. Uh, so I go back to the past for a moment. Uh, so it all started, uh, you know, when I moved to this health domain in 2008, 2009, with applying certain techniques that I mastered in terms of modeling business processes for healthcare and so on. So this was very cure oriented, very clinic oriented. And I was in a way taking requirements from clinicians to optimize their efficiency and so to optimize information sharing between them. That was all nice. But after a while, I, I wanted to make a more radical contribution and I moved completely to primary prevention. So now we're talking 2014, 2015. So if you're asking me now, Peter, what are you working on currently? Is effectively the merging of those two streams where no longer is it just like doing curative things for the clinicians also it's not only doing primary prevention for the population at large it is bringing the gamification techniques that we develop back to the clinical trajectory so there you have to think about for example rehabilitation uh, after a cardiovascular event or you're talking about people with a high risk of overweight or you're talking about diabetic people how can you help them towards a better lifestyle. Um, certainly, I would still say that we're doing more than what we would have done if we would have applied gamification immediately in the first years, because now we take this experience with us that effectively the social integration between family members and colleagues is something that we also give to patients in the clinical setting. So not only do we stigmatize them in a way saying, oh, you're a cute patient, let's help you with some gamification techniques, now we treat them as citizens that have, by the way, this clinical condition, sure. And we may indeed um, use to their benefit also the social cohesion with their peer patients, because this can help them. But on top of that, we take into account that these are also healthy citizens and they have also positive points. And we try to put that um, to the use of, on the one hand, preventing uh, the worsening of their uh, disease, but also making them happier overall and also giving similar happiness to their family members. I think that's a really powerful position to put in that system with, with clinical conditions and not patients. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that particularly with long-term health conditions, non-communicable diseases, they are ubiquitous. Uh, around a quarter to a third of the world of adults are, are living with these conditions, labeling everyone as a patient to give them that mindset that, oh, I am sick. I am a patient. I need to, the only way I can get better is to find a doctor or a nurse or a hospital. It creates a scenario where people believe they've lost their locus of control and that 
exist within another healthcare professional rather than themselves, but they're not patients. They're just people with a very common health condition. And there are ways that they can self-manage that. And using gamification to create those behaviors, is just a powerful way to move forward with it. That's a great introduction, uh, Peter. To... So in practice then, what are some examples of how you're using game mechanics, how you're pulling on the things that we know work really well to create behaviors within your work and your research? Well, I'm about to give the word to Raul, by the way, because um, he's now actually the, the young, energetic guy who really does the work. And I try to do more than just advising, but certainly he is the power behind the work that we're doing at the moment. Um, but overall, I would say that in terms of simple, well-known game mechanics, we started out with um, quite classical leaderboards, but also social media news feeds. Besides that, with like mechanics and commenting mechanics on top of pictures that people would share of their healthy behaviors. And besides that, we have recently been experimenting with lottery, so gambling mechanics. And Raul can give you more details on the specific experiments that we conduct in such a context. Yeah. That'd be cool, Raul. But also, I'm really interested to know how you encourage people to actually share the pictures of themselves doing their healthy behaviors. That is a good question. I can also comment on that. So first of all, Peter, thank you for sketching the research line, let's say. And now I can zoom in a little bit on the experiment we are doing in practice. So the and uh, first, let me repeat the goal of those experiments. What I find out is what game mechanics, what gamification mechanics work uh, for what people. And uh, so we, we really try to, to tailor our, our, our mechanics or at least find evidence on how we best uh, do that. Now, an example few examples Peter already already uh, shared like we have done some research on leaderboards and social structures uh, nowadays we are mainly focusing on rewards and lottery based incentives can comment a little bit on that but first I must say we always depart depart from some kind of point based system and in general we give our users a task list or a list of goals and if they work on their goals, they receive points. Now, we have already several options here because we can set fixed goals for people or we can personalize. People can set their goals themselves. We have done some research into that uh, on how you can best do that, um, but there are res results are still very inconclusive. So, so it's really hard to, to make decisions there. Quick question for you there. Do, do you give them some example goals or just leave them a blank slate to set their personalized goals? We have done both things. Um, so we have set fixed goals. We have given example goals that people can edit. And we've even set free free goals. But I cannot yet comment on what worked, worked best. Yeah, that is something where we should look into at a later point. Now, whenever people have their goals assigned, they start performing uh, activities to work on their goals and they receive points for that and those points those virtual points are our entry point for a performance visualization and that has been the core of my research in the past let's say three years so we have done uh, performance visualizations with leaderboards for example we have uh, displayed performance in teams versus as individuals Nowadays, we are um, we are visualizing these points in some kind of lotteries. So 
people can spend their points on lotteries. And if, if I may comment on, on, on the results there, perhaps, perhaps it's nice. So we started with the following uh, proposition that giving money to people is very engaging. And by giving money to people, they will probably work on their goals. However, we were unsure what would happen if you stop the money incentive at a later point, because, yeah, giving money quickly gets very expensive. So in the first experiment, we, we tried that. We gave a group of people a financial incentive after three, three weeks in the, uh, in the campaign. Then for a week, they could win a financial incentive. And after that week, we dropped the financial incentive again. And we compared that to a group that could not win any financial incentives. Now, what did we find? Uh, the financial incentivized group, they, their activity spiked in the third week. They were very active, as expected. They really wanted to do something for the money. Now, after those three weeks, what we saw, um, yeah, we were happy about that. Of, of course, their engagement dropped significantly, but not below the engagement of the control group. And that was, of course, uh, a good sign that we could improve engagement with monetary incentives without really harming the engagement after the financial incentive is gone. What was the size of the incentive you were offering people? 20 euros in uh, vouchers. So this voucher they could spend at a uh, very well-known web shop in the Netherlands. And how long did they have to perform for, as it were, to earn the 20 euros? They had to do a mixture of activities over the course of, let's say, three days or so. They could reach the incentive in three days. It was relatively easy, let's say. Now, if I may uh, continue on what we did next. So uh, the financial incentive, yeah, it could, it could buy engagement, essentially. But, of course, it was still expensive. So then what we tried to do is now if we raffle those uh, financial incentives in a lottery, do we still have the same engagement? Can we still buy engagement at the same level or is engagement lower? And we tried that in a follow-up experiment and we set up again a, a few groups. And in these groups were different lottery-based incentives in which they could win financial incentives. And what we saw is that we could have a similar impact on engagement with the lottery-based incentives. So that also made us very happy because we found that you can buy incentive, buy engagement with variable incentives, so with, with lottery-based incentives, at the same level as saying to people, do this and you get this amount of money. What you don't stress enough, though, is that it's much cheaper, huh? because um, it, yeah. this was the core of it. Yeah, yeah, that was the core. Thank you. And you played quite aggressively with the odds there. I mean, you're sure that basically the study campaign owner, or let's say the sponsor, would, sa would save quite a lot. Can you quantify that? Green. Perhaps later we can share this, but in any case, it's substantial. Yeah. yeah. And uh, out of interest, did you have a higher number as the financial incentive, the main win? No. Again, 20 euros. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and but we, we made some different forms of it. So one lottery, they could win the 20 euros in one go. 
and we also made a form where uh, people could uh, win vouchers of five euros every uh, every multiple lotteries um, we didn't see very clear differences between these different lottery variants that's cool and was it the same time period they'd be yeah. performing over yeah okay very interesting and what was yeah. the, as a kind of ballpark what were the odds that you would win 20 euros or five euros kind of was it one in a hundred one in a thousand what was the likelihood that people had i put it to 20 percent chance so whenever you rolled the dice, you had you had twenty percent chance of, of winning something. Better than most lotteries. That's better than yeah. most raffles you'd enter as well. Fair enough. It is good odd. The thing is, we're in this domain where the dropouts are, of course, radical. Eh? We we lose so many participants over time. So if then we can basically keep people engaged using these techniques, then twenty percent is still like relatively low, you know, because. People disappear all the time and we want to keep them engaged. And, and that's certainly something that Raul and I want to uh, give a good example at. I mean, we're certainly not going to hide, but in our studies, there's a huge dropout. I think this is strongly underemphasized in the literature. It's radical. And um, yeah, so hereby, we just did that. <laughs> so do you find that you've chosen different psychological motivational theories to work with because you're aiming for a longer term engagement? Yeah, so the, the funny thing is that uh, when I started this research on this platform named GameBus, uh, I pretty much used my own common sense. And I got feeling, and I talked a lot, of course, to experts, so I shouldn't say that it's my gut feeling based on my ideas, because you talk so much with, with experts. It was really just that, and then, I mean, I, I came up with the design of GameBus, but then later, when I connected to a psychologist within our department, she explained to me that actually the self-determination theory mapped extremely well to what we were doing. And it turns out that indeed, the literature suggests that theory as a theory that is very well suitable for the uh, intrinsic motivation, right? And why is that the case? Huh? So the self-determination theory states that autonomy, for example, is an important element. Well, this gamification strategy that we take was very much centered around let people themselves decide which goals they want to address, which activities they're going to perform, rather than stipulating that they all need to put, make these one, uh, sorry, 10,000 steps. Right? So I was quite allergic to this default thinking. So that's why I went for a very flexible approach. And then in retrospect, okay, hey, that's autonomy right there. Right? And, and same for um, the relatedness and the, uh, other elements of, of, of such theories, I should say, because the self-determination theory was one, um, but, but later, uh, let's say hindsight, uh, we found out also for other theories, but the self-determination theory is the, the most striking example because basically, say a few months after building the technology and experimenting with it, I had a chat with the psychologist only to figure out that it maps well to the theories. I mean, it's, I don't know if you've heard of, of uh, Sweatcoin. Sweatcoin, I don't know. Uh, Sweatcoin is an app that um, pays you to walk. Uh, that's kind of one of their mm. big taglines is about kind of financial incentives and rewards for walking, counting steps. 
but I think there's like a 20% improvement in engagement activity because of it. So it's interesting because I know I've reading through past papers that sometimes financial incentives can be no more effective than non-financial incentive or no incentive at all. Uh, sometimes it's more about that delayed gratification when the incentives at the end of being active rather than giving them some incentive for every single time they're active. What's interesting about it is the drop-off rate still and what's clear about all the health points interviews we've had is there is no grand singular solution it's kind of horses for courses uh people in the same way there are hundreds of thousands of games out there for people who like different types of game mechanics i think in gamification and health we need to see it in a similar way there is going to be no panacea there's going to be no silver bullet for a singular game to create health behaviors so what else have you seen which has been really effective from your view well to be honest i'm inclined to look more at the entertainment games when i'm looking for inspiration than to look at the other health gamification uh, apps and um, raul and i had a recent no well, perhaps not so recent anymore because it was in this building and it was before the pandemic i think uh, so it's a year ago already, Raul, that we talked about uh, what can we learn from the games that we like ourselves. And back then, I was pretty enthusiastic about Clash Royale. And one element that triggers me in that game is that while I'm playing, so while I'm at the task that is actually yielding me points, I'm kind of making fun expressing myself with emoticons, emojis. It doesn't deliver me points, but it's kind of a brag, you know, you're, you're playing against someone else and concurrently you're just making funny faces so these types of things uh you know we try to reflect upon and and we also of course are very critical about okay fine it's inspiring for peter yeah but that doesn't justify that we should spend thousands and thousands of euros of government budget on letting phds implement such features in the platform that we use for our scientific experiments but still, we, we really do look at it because if we would only look at the related works written in the scientific journals in the field of health gamification, we would miss many inspiring examples from the popular um, entertainment game industry. I think that's a really important point because quite often, particularly in the academic side of things, we're testing just one or two game mechanics to see how efficacious they are. Whereas actually in a game, there might be quite a few and it's how they interact all together and that make it work better. I mean, have you tried working with just like one or two game mechanics at a time? What difference do you find it makes adding more into the mix? Raul and I always make this analogy towards um, how you design good sports infrastructure. And the terminology we use is that you need good grass to play soccer, right? Then you can, you know, if you would do scientific analysis of sports games, you would certainly look at the detailed movement of the players and you would instruct them over time to follow different strategies. But of course, if you're going to organize a big match, you want the grass to be as good as possible because otherwise it makes no sense. So in relation to your question, what we always try to do is we look back to, of course, the literature, but also our own experiments and we bring in all of the things that have been shown to work best. And then we have different treatment arms with a tiny detail that we want to study. Uh, so in that sense, yes, of course, we do apply those many techniques together, but as grass, not to be studied against the situation where people are playing soccer in the desert, yeah, because that doesn't make sense. It's always on the perfect grass. And then there are tiny differences to be studied. And I find this critical, Pete, to, to, to put it like that, because 
you also find also in the academic literature then these approaches where they compare app A versus app B and they pretend as if app A is going to represent this game mechanic and app B is going to represent that game mechanic. But we all know that these apps, they are different on so many other things as well. So it's not fair to play it like that in an experiment. And, and, and I'm pretty proud, in fact, that actually the contribution that we try to make at Eindhoven University is one where we have ourselves full control over this scientific gamification infrastructure, which may not have all the bells and whistles of the industrial counterparts, but we have full control to ensure that the grass is exactly the same if we're going to uh, compare different gamification mechanics in health. That is critical as well. That's really interesting. I'm assuming your technology backgrounds have helped with this split testing approach to this. And, and now I'm intrigued because when we're running a marketing campaign in our technology world and we want to split test something, we'll want at least 100 results of each of the versions in order to think, yeah, that's enough to put some money behind and make that change. How many participants are you generally working with and how many split tests are you able to run? How useful can we make this? A good question. Um, so in our research, we are typically working with 60 to 300 people. Uh, we've done a handful of studies with, let's say, 300 people involved. And we've done a few smaller studies with, say, 60 to uh, 100 people involved. This is actually a, also a very critical point and a challenge in health research, uh, I found, because we are in this field of prevention and participation to our program is always voluntary and oftentimes people don't we want to reach people that do not yet feel a, a clear urge to start working on their health because they don't have a medical condition yet well they're slightly overweight but they, they don't notice it so they recruitment is already quite hard how are you going to include people in your studies and how are you going to, yeah, to find empirical evidence? Um, so lately, well, we are also trying to shift our research focus more into that. So not only on our platform testing A, B and C against each other and finding out what is the most promising one uh, variant for a particular group, but also in the phase before that, can we best recruit people to to join our program in the first place because if you cannot get people to, to join your program then all your bells and whistles and it doesn't make sense at all and we really find this a challenge and we acknowledge this challenge and yeah we really also try to focus our research attention onto that so that's really interesting that's what in the there's a tool out there called the player journey which i really like which starts with the discovery phase which is how people even find out about your gamification solution in the first place. And there's there's some people out there that will go and build a game or gamification just for that phase alone to get people interested. Yeah. Yeah. So is this what you're thinking about doing, gamifying how you find members for the study? Yeah, good question. I'm thinking more of, in the end, you want to change people's behavior. So if you approach it like that, in the end, you want to or, or get people to join a sports club to eat healthier, whatever. Uh, you want to do that via your program. You have your program all settled up. Well, great. Now you need people to join your program. And that you 
should, I think, also approach as a behavior change problem. How can you change people's behavior that they are going into your into your uh, program? And indeed, I agree that you may uh, may use gamification techniques also for that phase. That is very good uh, idea. Perhaps, Raoul, this is the perfect moment to clarify that uh, although I personally have the software engineering background and you certainly also have the affinity as an industrial engineer, but within the project that funds your research, we approach the problem from multiple dimensions and besides the gamification, let's say, mHealth uh, technology uh, point or, or, or dimension, we have the built environment. And when you said, Pete, like, okay, are you perhaps considering to also make then an app for the onboarding? I People don't see it because this is audio only, but I was saying, no, no, no. Because the thing is, we have the app out there and we make it as good as possible. The point is people need to know about the app. So I, I guess we're more thinking about which intervention should we do also in the real world, in the physical, in the built environment to make people, first of all, aware of the fact that we're running this campaign for them. Because, you know, if you then say, you know, but I have another app and they, it will onboard them, but then they don't know about that app, right? So it's really the very first phase that we're thinking of. And um, yeah, certainly then this built environment is, is a quite critical one, we think. At the same time, um, okay, there, there was, of course, this project set up and it's clearly written and we have experts on board from basically the department of the built environment. We think we still need to go a lot of miles to, to make real progress there. I think much more experiments need to be performed. Yeah, so lots of work still to be done, but we're certainly quite aware of the, the limitations we have and we're eager to address them in future work. You're in this researcher's dilemma around prevention. And this is a conversation I've been having for over a decade now is that particularly with these lifestyle-based interventions, which it may be five, 10, 20 years to really see the outcome in terms of genuine prevention because they're a high-risk category or even a low-risk category. RCTs are great when you're trying to distill one thing, like a pharmaceutical drug, you're trying to compare against another thing. The problem with these interventions is that because it takes so long to find out if it's going to work or not, to really truly understand if the upstream healthcare costs are going to be prevented, you may not truly find out the answer to that even within your professional career. I think what I find most exciting about the role of gamification is that if it can be designed well enough, it's an activity that people will do and potentially even pay for themselves to engage with. Why do we often do research? It's to ultimately gain the interest of governments and health institutions to fund public health activities. If you can create gamified health activities, which are as engaging as all the games out there in the $200 billion industry, will people just proactively become healthier in their activities? Because I don't feel that the long-term goal is the idea you're going to gain all the research to put forward a health economic case to a government or a health institution to fund this thing. Or is that the long-term goal? Well, not in my project. In my PhD project, we have really scoped that. We have said we are going to focus on engagement measures. So we, we are focusing on can we engage people, how long can we engage people, and how much. If And we assume... If we can engage people and they, over longer periods, they will eventually be healthier. That is the assumption for my project. Now, I agree with you that whole assumption uh, needs more empirical research in itself. 
that again is quite hard as you just stated you need longer periods of time and right now it is very hard to engage people over those long periods of time voluntarily to join your program this is like a chicken and egg story before you have a program that is strong enough to engage people for 10 years you cannot really know if you have if your program is reaping health benefits benefits in 10 years so yeah that's that's a difficult conversation uh, and yeah this is what i can say for my project uh, peter can you can you add a perspective yeah i like the question because it demands in a way a, a black or white response but at the same time i do the classical academic trick that, <laughs> that i'm going to say you need both and here i do that because in a way i think on the one hand we need idealists that just go for these highly engaging games and they just keep on going for it, like they make a career out of that. And you know, some of these scholars or entrepreneurs, they're not so much in the evaluation. They just think like, this is so important, I just do it. And I sincerely hope that many people keep on doing that because we need it so much. At the same time, completely other side of the spectrum, I've been reflecting the other day about the fact that Sometimes I, I observe that people have stopped using our technology, but later when I talk to them, they say, yeah, you know, but the fact that you guys were doing that, I still started moving more, you know, and I didn't check your app every day, but just because this was happening, I started moving more. So the complete other side of the spectrum, because it's kind of a call for also supporting approaches where you do focus on the very long-term effects, including the side effects of just the marketing campaign around the technology that's perhaps not brilliant from the game design point of view, but it does have even effects that are directly health related because you actually did move. So I'm giving two seemingly, and I guess just truly conflicting answers, but at the same time, I think that's just, you know, because we are talking here about not just what should one individual do in his career, but what should we do as mankind to make the world better? And we need different people focusing on different things because they're both important. Also, I think there you, my approach to gamification, which is I like to use the game elements to get people into the new habit, the new behavior you want. And a really good one should then be, if you took the game away, they still do that new movement, that extra movement, that extra behavior. Yeah, which is that long-term behavior change that actually is all we want out of it. Yeah, but and if that works, they don't need to play it for more than... I agree. However long is needed. But the tricky thing is that um, it's a dangerous corner we're now in. Because on the one hand, you would say that um, the current funds don't allow us to provide the evidence that we make such contributions because you would need a much longer running project. And why am I saying that it's a dangerous corner? Because we certainly don't want that people are starting to use that as an excuse, right? Yeah, so I think it's, it needs the discussion and I think um, we certainly should aim higher and we should also quantify the, the effects that you described where it really doesn't matter that people stop using the app because you've made the contribution. But we, yeah, and then we need other types of funds where we, and also other trial designs still, where we get permission to stalk people in a way, even if they drop out, because you then want to force an answer. Yeah, what? how did it impact you if, 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 yeah, in any way? And we don't have that in our trial designs. If they drop out, they drop out because it was voluntary participation. So you even don't have the discharge survey results. 
yeah, no, enough about that. Because uh, we, I can guarantee you that Raul and I, with with uh, nice friends like you, we can keep on talking about these types of topics for many hours. But I think maybe the important thing is that it's not about an individual finding a, a health gamified health app and just keeping engaged. It's the same with when you first find a new hobby or interest. You may end up being a sculptor, but the very first thing you did was a paint by numbers at a fair. But it got you that initial interest to keep on that journey of a new hobby, of a new interest. Is the role of gamified health interventions just to start the spark of interest? And the hope is that people continue on that journey somewhere. And that's enough. That's all that's needed to make it an effective intervention because they'll create the healthy behavior through some activity, gamified health activity that they find along that journey. One thing I would like to love to know about both of you is what are your favorite games? What is it? What is it that you spend your time doing in terms of games? I wouldn't particularly consider myself a, a hardcore gamer. Um, on my phone, I have one uh, game that I default to whenever I have some spare minutes. It's a it's a game like 2048. You have to uh, send numbers over the screen. It is not really. Uh, what I would say, gaming. What I think about when I hear gaming is gaming together with my family and playing a nice board game. And I'm especially in there for the, for the social part of it, for the friendly competition together with your family members. And uh, yeah, that for me is, uh, is like, it's, it's a feeling. You understand? That, that's the, and that's the feeling I would like to be able to evoke in people with our health programs. I hope we can do it one day. Yeah, I'm a bit of a chameleon, I guess, uh, in the sense that the best way to explain is that just like similar to Raul, I'm also very uh, socially inspired. So if I see someone having fun, I'm in and I'll, and I'll join. Uh, and indeed, board games are a good example of that. Now, unfortunately, my family doesn't like them so much. So then in practice, what I then do in terms of an entertainment game would be these casual games. Like I mentioned already, Clash Royale was quite a thing for me. And I know that a game really has me hooked when I'm removing it because then I'm protecting myself. Uh, and one such game that I reinstalled, I think just once now, so I'm in phase two, so to speak, I'll soon remove it again, is a game called Polytopia. And uh, it's about um, yeah, conquering tiles in a certain world. And again, you know, it's, yeah, okay. Already for many years, I, I like these strategy games and stuff. But in this case, the reason that I stay engaged, oh, you also got a tea, great, um, is that I really want to get the three star, perhaps even 100% score for a member of these tribes on that game. So, and that also is a, is a matter of how you evolve in such a game. Initially, it's like, okay, cool, nice. You play it a few times and you're so proud that you, you, for example, could reach two stars. But then, oh, but what about if we increase the difficulty level and so on? So that's what I did. Now, it all started with me here, this Polytopia story with a friend um, that posted on Facebook a query like, which is the game that you like most? And, and a few people mentioned Polytopia, including he himself. Um, and so I just tried, but the thing is that at this phase where I was so proud about my performance, he posted 
on Facebook that he had three stars, 100% for all the tribes. And just at that point, I thought like with, I think it's some mafia movie, like just when I was out, they pulled me back in. That's what happened because I got the game again and I had to improve my score. So in the game, yes, I'm pretty uh, sensitive to social comparison in a way. But also, you know, as I said earlier, even with games that are not competitive at all, but that are still social, I'm in as well. Some great examples and just highlighting how powerful game mechanics and uh, social representation of how we're performing in games can be such a big motivator. Uh, Raul, Peter, it's been fantastic having you on the episode today. Uh, we've gone from everything from incentivizing people with money to how you, to, we can use gambling to create more efficient ways to create behaviors all the way through to the challenges with research uh, to create the evidence base to implement game uh, and health interventions. Uh, thank you both so much for your time today and looking forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Absolute pleasure. Thank well, you.